Please turn in your Bibles to the book of 2 Samuel. It should be familiar to you by now. I hope we're reaching the stage where you open your Bible up and it falls open to 2 Samuel. If not, you might get a bookmark and put it in there as we're just about halfway through this, uh, this wonderful book about the reign of David. We are in chapter 16 this morning. We'll be looking at David's continued flight from Jerusalem. And if you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. 2 Samuel 16, beginning at verse 1. When David had passed a little beyond the summit, Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, met him, with a couple of donkeys saddled, bearing two hundred loaves of bread, a hundred bunches of raisins, a hundred of summer fruits, and a skin of wine. And the king said to Ziba, Why have you brought these? Ziba answered, The donkeys are for the king's household to ride on, the bread and summer fruit for the young men to eat, and the wine for those who faint in the wilderness to drink. And the king said, And where is your master's son? Ziba said to the king, Behold, he remains in Jerusalem. For he said, Today the house of Israel will give me back the kingdom of my father. Then the king said to Ziba, Behold, all that belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours. And Ziba said, I pay homage. Let me ever find favor in your sight, my lord, the king. When King David came to Baharim, there came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera, and as he came, he cursed continually. And he threw stones at David and at all the servants of King David, and all the people and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. And Shimei said as he cursed, Get out! Get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into your hand of your son, Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. Then Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and take off his head. But the king said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah? If he is cursing because the Lord, if he is cursing because the Lord has said to him, Curse David, who then shall say, Why have you done so? And David said to Abishai and to all his servants, Behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjaminite leave him alone? And let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me, and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. So David and his men went on the road, while Shimei went along on the hillside opposite him, and cursed as he went, and threw stones at him, and flung dust. And the king and all the people who were with him arrived weary at the Jordan, and there he refreshed himself. Now Absalom and all the people, the men of Israel, came to Jerusalem and Ahithophel with him. 
And when Hushai the archite, David's friend, came to Absalom, Hushai said to Absalom, Long live the king! Long live the king! And Absalom said to Hushai, Is this your loyalty to your friend? Why did you not go with your friend? And Hushai said to Absalom, No, for whom the Lord and this people and all the men of Israel have chosen, his I will be, and with him I will remain. And again, whom should I serve? Should it not be his son? As I have served your father, so I will serve you. Then Absalom said to Ahithophel, Give your counsel. What shall we do? Ahithophel said to Absalom, Go into your father's concubines, whom he has left to keep the house. And all Israel will hear that you have made yourself a stench to your father. And the hands of all who are with you will be strengthened. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof. And Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. Now in those days, the counsel that Ahithophel gave was as if one consulted the word of God. So was all the counsel of Ahithophel esteemed, both by David and by Absalom. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. O Lord, take your word and root it deep in our hearts. Show us who you are, Lord, and the mighty things that you have done through your word. Help us to see the Lord Jesus Christ and to honor him. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. Can good come out of hard times? This is what we've been looking at in this low point in David's life these past few chapters. Last week we saw Absalom hatch a conspiracy against David. And David had to flee Jerusalem. We saw David respond with wisdom, faith, and prayer. And we also saw the Lord encourage David through three friends. Now in this chapter, David is still on the run. And we see three enemies, Ziba, Shimei, and Ahithophel. And what we see is how the Lord is still at work in David's life. Even using David's enemies to make his presence known to David. This is a reminder to us that when God promises never to leave us, He means it. So let's take a look at these three scenes with three enemies of David. The first scene that we see is the deception that provides. In verses 1 through 4, we see the deception that provides. And it begins with a man named Ziba coming on the scene. Do you remember Ziba? In chapter 9, he was the servant of Saul whom David asked if there was any descendant of Jonathan that he could show kindness to. And Ziba told David about Mephibosheth. And David 
put Ziba in charge as the steward of all of Mephibosheth's lands. David restored Saul's lands to Mephibosheth, and Ziba was the steward to run the farm and the lands. And then we hear nothing more about Ziba until now. Now he comes on the scene bringing provisions, donkeys, bread, fruit, and wine. Now these are not endless supplies. This won't solve David's problems permanently, but they certainly would be welcome. Because you'll recall that David had to leave quickly from Jerusalem. He and his people would not have had time to gather up supplies for what could have been a long exile. They don't know what will happen. And so it would be a welcome sight to see Ziba bringing these provisions. Now, David asks Ziba in verse 3 where Mephibosheth is. Because you would think that he would be with Ziba. He says in verse 3, where is your master's son? That's Mephibosheth. And the answer that David gets is a bit shocking. It's not something that David expects. It's not something that we would expect. Ziba tells him that Mephibosheth has stayed behind and that he declared that now is the time for him to reclaim the kingdom, that the kingdom will be given back to him, the kingdom that belonged to his grandfather, Saul. Now, if we cheat a bit and look ahead to chapter 19, we will see that this is not the account. There's a very different account we get of Mephibosheth in chapter 19. Now what is Ziba doing here? What's going on? I think it's very simple. He's lying. You can't match up what Ziba says here with what we know to be true in chapter 19. Now, the better question, I think, is why would Ziba do this? Why would he lie? And I think the answer is that he wants David to see him as being unusually loyal and helpful. And in order to make himself look better, he is very willing to throw Mephibosheth under the bus. If Mephibosheth looks bad, then Ziba looks even better. He's not just someone who came, he came against the wish of his master because he so loves David that he wanted to help him. He's puffing up his own image. Now, it's actually likely that Ziba doesn't have tremendous love for David because after all, David didn't give Ziba any lands previously. He just kind of put him in charge of it. He gave him the work without the ownership. Now, I'm sure Ziba lived a pretty good life, as you can imagine that in Israel, but it's not like he owed David at this point. At the same time, it also is clear from our text that Ziba is pro-David. He doesn't have to stick his neck out here. He doesn't have to come and bring the provisions. But what we see here as we look closely is that Ziba is playing both sides here. He's helping David so that if David wins, he'll be remembered as the one who brought provisions and help. Now, it's a little risky what he's doing because he's not telling the truth about Mephibosheth, but he knows that Davis, David now obviously has no time to check his story out. 
He's running away from Jerusalem, not toward Jerusalem. And then later, I imagine Ziba thinks that even if his lie is found out, is David really going to ignore the help that he gave him over one lie? And maybe Ziba imagines he can say, well, I must have misunderstood my master. I was confused. But remember, when you were down and out, this is the guy that brought you to wine and the raisins. I brought you to donkeys. You can count on me, David. But the other interesting thing is, is that unlike the friends that we saw in chapter 15, Ziba does not go with David into exile. We also know this from chapter 19, that when David returns, Ziba goes out to meet him from the other side of the Jordan. And so what that means is, if Absalom wins this civil war, then Ziba will just continue to work the farm. He's not really taking the chance that, for example, Ittai is. That he's not casting himself completely with David. He's playing both sides to see how he can come out best. Now, Ziba is not the worst kind of person. He's not even an obvious enemy to David. But he is a manipulator. He's not being truthful. And he's selfish. He's looking out for number one. He's only concerned about the advantage he can get from all of this. David's trouble is actually an opportunity for Ziba. An opportunity for him to look good. That's how Ziba sees this. This is a warning for you and me. Because if you're not careful, you can fall into this same trap. It's easy to try and set up our own image so that we can benefit from it. It's easy to remind others how helpful we are to them, not because we want to be helpful, but because we want to be rewarded. Be careful not to fall into the trap of Ziba. Well, David does fall into this trap. He makes a rash decision in verse 4. He says, everything that was Mephibosheth now belongs to you, Ziba. Now, David doesn't even take 30 seconds to think this over. I suppose we could be a little bit lenient with David because he doesn't actually have a lot of time to think right now. He's on the run. Any moment now, Absalom's forces could show up. He, David doesn't know they could be pursuing him. But he doesn't check the story out. He doesn't hesitate or think about it. He doesn't wait to pronounce this judgment. He pronounced it immediately without even the requirement of a second witness. David is a bit foolish here. You see, because on its face, Ziba's story seems ridiculous. If David would have stopped for just a moment and thought, why would Mephibosheth think that if Absalom, the son of David, is rebelling and declaring himself king, that the people are going to hand the throne over to the lame grandson of Saul? That doesn't make any sense at all. That's not going to happen. But David doesn't think about this. He doesn't press the point. But what we actually need to see behind the flattery, behind the manipulation of Ziba, 
Behind David's impulsive decision is that God is at work. Now, Ziba has his reasons for doing what he did. They're not honorable reasons. He's not telling the truth. At the same time, he is pro-David because he only gets these lands if David wins. Ziba is out for Ziba. He's not helping David because he's the anointed king of Israel. No, he's helping David because of what he can get out of it. And what we need to see here is that loyalty for the sake of greed is not the same as loyalty for principle. But we should not think that God is silent or absent here. God is using Ziba and his underhanded ways to provide for David. David understood this. When David got to a place of safety, he wrote Psalm 3. That may be of interest to you this afternoon to, to read that, to get into the mind of David. And what David says in that psalm is, The Lord sustained me. He doesn't say, Ziba was a great friend and provided for me. No, David knew that God was providing for him behind it. God uses unexpected and unusual ways to help his people. That's what we see here. Now, it may not be how we would have done it, but we have to remember that God is wise and is good, and he provides for David even through the deception of Ziba. Well, the next scene that we see is along the path toward the Jordan. David comes across a man who is filled with hate and anger. His name is Shimei, and he was a relative of Saul. Now, we don't need to wonder what Shimei thinks of David. That is very clear from the text. He must think that he's a safe distance from David and his men because he holds nothing back. It is a constant stream of cursing. We see this in verse 5. He cursed continually. And this likely was a stream of both foul language, which we would imagine, and criticism of David. He's calling David every name in the book. You blankety-blank this and you this and that, and you've done this, and you've done that, and I hope this happens to you. All of the worst of the trash talk is raining down on David. And there is a specific quote that we are given that is about as bad as it could get. He curses David, and he calls David a man of blood, a worthless man. And he tells him that all that David is experiencing is the judgment of the Lord on him for the blood that he has shed. Now, Shimei is very likely not referring to what we might think. Our minds might go immediately back to Uriah. But that's not what Shimei is concerned about. Shimei is convinced that David is guilty of the murders of Abner and Ishbosheth. Do you remember them? Travel back a few months in our series. You remember that Joab killed Abner and David protested his innocence. He even rebuked Joab and he held an honorable funeral for Abner. And two men murdered Ishbosheth. And David, to show that he wanted no part of that either, instead of rewarding them, he put them to death 
in judgment and justice. But Shimei is not buying that. He says, that's all political talk. That's your handlers that put you up to that. I know who you are, David. You plotted their death. You're a man of blood. You are guilty. He never believed that David was innocent. And Shimei wants to see that David gets what he deserves. This disaster that's come upon him. Evil is the word that's used in verse 8. David deserves what's coming to him. Shimei is certain that the Lord is meeting out justice to David for his sin, shedding the blood of the house of Saul. Now, after a bit, at least one man in David's party gets tired of this. Abishai, David's nephew and a commander in the army, you may remember him from earlier in the book, he offers to lop off Shimei's head. That's because Abishai knows that severed heads stop talking. And he wants to put an end to this trash talk. He's had enough of this. But David responds in a most unusual way in verse 10. He says, what have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah? If he is cursing because the Lord has said to him, curse David, who then shall say, why have you done so? David says that Shimei is cursing him because God has told him to do it. Again in verse 11, the Lord has told him so. What's going on here? Why does David respond this way? David, I believe, is humbled under Shimei's cursing. Unjust though it is. David knows he's innocent of the blood of Abner and the blood of Ishbosheth, But he's actually guilty of far worse. And Shimei here is being used by the Lord as a part of his judgment on David for his sins against Bathsheba and Uriah the Hittite. Let me ask you this. <coughs> Do difficulties and hard times humble you? Is your reaction to hard times always, I don't deserve this. Why is this happening to me? Or can you be drawn to think of your sin and to see God humbling you under His providential hand? We're not as innocent as we think we are. As a matter of fact, if others knew what we were really guilty of, it would be much worse for us. You may find yourself in a place like David where someone is accusing you of something that you know you haven't done, that you know you're innocent of, but you can stop and think to yourself, but what they don't know is what a great sinner I am. Now there is a second reason for David's reaction to Shimei. And we see it in verse 12. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. Now this, there is a difficulty here with the translation. The translation from the Hebrew is hard here. The word that is translated wrong in the ESV and in other translations is translated this way as something that is happening to David. It's what suffering and affliction is coming upon David. 
But ordinarily, this word that's translated wrong in Hebrew is translated as iniquity or sin. Not wrong as in bad things happening, but wrong as in I've done wrong. You see how words have a range of meaning. Typically, this word means sin or iniquity. But that doesn't make much sense here because the question is, how would the Lord look on the sin that's been done to David when David is running because of his own sin and no one's really wronged him yet? It doesn't make sense. And so the translators smooth out the translation by saying, it'll make sense if David's talking about his own wrong or his affliction or his own suffering. That's a permissible way to translate this, and it is, and it makes sense. But I think there's another good reason to take this word as iniquity. David here is not thinking that he's the victim. Because if David was thinking he was the victim, he would have said to Abishai, go ahead, take his head off and his arms too. I'm the victim. He's attacking me. Shut him up. Stop the wrong that's coming to me. But that's not what David does. David does the exact opposite. He says, let him go on and curse. It's coming from the Lord. Now, why would David say this? I think it's because David is aware of his own sin. What verse 12 actually says is, it may be that the Lord will look on my iniquity, my sin, and do good to me. God will look on my sin and repay me with good. Now, what does that mean? How can David say that? It does, that makes even less sense, doesn't it? Especially to most of the world. Because most of the world operates on the principle that if I do good, God will reward me with good. And if I do bad, God will punish me with bad. A short way of describing that is works righteousness. That the good that comes to me only comes to me based on and in relationship to my own good works. And so I better do good so that it goes well with me. But David says the exact opposite. He says God will look on my iniquity and reward me with good. David is looking for grace. He knows that the Lord is a God of mercy and grace. That's the gospel. God looks on our sin. And in Jesus Christ, he rewards us with good. David had already experienced the grace of God over and over again. And it gave him a confidence that is evident here in the worst of times. Do you see God as a God of grace? Do you know how great a sinner you are? That is the gospel. You gain nothing by minimizing your sin and thinking God should be happy because of how great you are. No. You gain everything when you realize that you deserve nothing. And that Jesus Christ died so that you would receive mercy and grace. 
Because of Jesus, God has repaid you with good for your iniquity. Can you believe that? That's the truth of the gospel. Well, the third and final scene that we see is as Absalom enters Jerusalem. And here we see wickedness that reveals the truth. Absalom enters on a note of triumph. There is widespread support for his rebellion. It's shown here in verse 15. All the people and the men of Israel come to Jerusalem and they're supporting Absalom. And ominously, we're told once again that Ahithophel is with Absalom. We know he's dangerous. And then we see in verse 16, Hushai. We're immediately reminded of who Hushai is and what he's doing because he's described as David's friend. And Hushai interacts with Absalom in a way that we can see as ambiguous, ambiguous because we know what's going on behind the scenes. And so Hushai comes to Absalom and he yells, Long live the king! And we wonder, why is he praising Absalom? But who is the king? Absalom has claimed to be the king, but who's God's anointed king? Isn't it David? It's almost as if Hushai comes up and he says, Long live the king! King David. Long live the king! The son of Jesse. Right? He's praising the king. And then when Absalom says, why didn't you go with your friend? Hushai says, no, whom the Lord has chosen, him I will serve. Now Absalom is just arrogant enough to think that somehow his in his rebellion, God has chosen him to be the king. But we know that the man that the Lord has chosen is David. We can go all the way back to 1 Samuel in Jesse's house, the parade of all of the sons, and Samuel's sure one of the others is the king. And the Lord says, no, 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 he's not here. Call him out from the fields. And David comes, and he's anointed. And then we see this anointing over and over again several other times in David's reign. And so Hushai here is being very careful with his words. We should expect that because after all, He's a spy. He's being careful. Well, then we see why David was so concerned about Ahithophel and why he cried out to the Lord in prayer. Absalom asks Ahithophel, what should I do? What's the very first thing I should do to consolidate my power now in Jerusalem? And the answer may surprise us, but it should also shock us. And repel us. And it shows us the character of Ahithophel. Ralph Davis calls Ahithophel the Judas Iscariot of the Old Testament. Now that sounds like a very harsh criticism until we drill down a little bit here. Because the case that Davis makes is strong because Ahithophel is forsaking God's anointed. This is not just treason against a Middle Eastern king. No. This is treason against God and his kingdom. Remember, 2 Samuel 7 is still in force. The kingdom has been given to David. 
It is his eternal kingdom. And God has said that it is his. And Ahithophel says, basically, I don't care. I'm going to betray God's chosen. David certainly saw this as a betrayal. It's likely that there are two psalms that make reference to this betrayal by Ahithophel. In Psalm 55, David writes, For it is not an enemy who taunts me, then I could bear it. It's not an adversary who deals insolent with me, then I could hide from him, with me. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together. Within God's house we walked in the throng. And again, in Psalm 41, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Now that psalm should remind you of another betrayer. Because our Lord Jesus Christ quotes Psalm 41 in John chapter 13, verse 18, to refer to Judas. Jesus is making the connection here between Ahithophel and Judas. And if you had any doubts about this, if you thought this is commentary sleight of hand, look at Ahithophel's counsel that he gives. He tells Absalom to go into his father's concubines. He says, set up a portable bedroom on the roof so that everyone can see and everyone can know what you're doing. If Ahithophel was an advisor in 2021, he would be on the phone with CNN and Fox News and every other outlet and say, come on down to the palace. There's good video for you. Broadcast it throughout the land. In this way, Ahithophel knows that Absalom will make public his assault on David. There will be no turning back from here. That's why the hands of those who are with him will be strengthened. The bridges will be burned. They will be sold out for Absalom. You recall that going into a king's concubine, taking his harem from him, was a public way of declaring rebellion against the king and that I have the throne. You recall back earlier in this book, Ishbosheth challenged Abner about this very thing. This is a deliberate action by Absalom. But it's also wicked. It's offensive. So why do we need to know about this now? Isn't this something that could have been summarized? Couldn't our narrator have said, Absalom makes a public shame of David. Absalom makes his rebellion public. Couldn't he just have left this out? I know that for parents of small children, it would be great if it was just left out. It's an uncomfortable passage. We already have the idea that Absalom is rebelling against David. Why does this happen now? And why, curiously enough, does verse 23 tell us after the counsel has been given that the counsel that Ahithophel gave was as if one consulted the word of God? Now that seems out of character. Ahithophel gives this wicked advice and our text tells us that it was as if it was the very word of God. What's going on here? Why does following Ahithophel's advice 
become like consulting the Word of God. Is God pleased by what's happening here? Of course not. But we have to remember what we heard in the past. The narrator doesn't make this easy for us. He could have helped us by beginning verse 23 by saying, And so the word of Nathan the prophet was fulfilled. Or if this were a movie, there would be some text scrolling along the bottom of the screen, reminding us of chapter 12. Go back there with me, if you would, for just a moment. 2 Samuel 12, verses 11 and 12. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. Do you see it here? The Lord is using the wicked counsel of Ahithophel to fulfill his word. His word is fulfilled right here. Now, that doesn't make Ahithophel any less guilty for his counsel. You know... Jesus was delivered up by the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Peter tells us that in Acts chapter 2, verse 23. But we're also told that Jesus was delivered up and taken by the hands of wicked men, lawless men. And they were not innocent in their actions. The Lord used their wickedness to bring about His will. So what does that mean then for us? It means that even when evildoers have their way, even when they succeed, so-called, God is still in control. Their evil only serves to carry out God's plan. And their wickedness here reveals God's truth. This chapter is a reminder to us not to be afraid of evildoers. They may seem to succeed. They may seem in control. But they are not. You have no greater proof of that than the Lord Jesus Christ. At the cross, the Jewish leaders thought they had triumphed. Satan shouted, victory! And yet we know that God was fulfilling His word and keeping His promise at the cross. Wicked hands seized Jesus. But it was God who handed over His Son to be the sacrifice to free you and me from our sins. You may see enemies around you. But don't let that stop you from seeing the Lord. Trust in the Lord and commit yourself to Him. Let's pray.